Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. One of the big topics and issues of our day, uh, without a doubt, has to do with security, privacy. What exactly is security? How do we get that? Um, Everybody today is very concerned about their own privacy, uh, whether it's on their computers or on their phones. They just don't want any invasion uh, by the government or any other persons. And we're all afraid of that. We're all afraid of, well, if I click into this. The other day I was um, looking for an address for somebody. And um, Beverly gave me some great hints on how. By the way, the person that I had you look up is deceased. <laughs> so, so I was looking up a family member. And um, some of you might know this. So i got to be a little bit cautious. But um, it, it asked several questions like, uh, is this person over such an age? Um, do they live in this town? Do they have a relative by this name? And then it said, to the best of your knowledge, do they have a police record, more or less? It was fancier words. And I said no. And then it came back and said, would it surprise you to find out that they do? <laughs> I didn't know how to answer that, so I got out of it. And then I came back into it later. I thought, all I need is an address. That's all I'm looking for. So I did that, and um, I learned quite a bit. And uh, and some of the lists that this person was listed as people who were watching them. And then I thought, oh, great. I'm searching this person that the government's watching. Now they're watching me. So, um, But that would be very boring. So they, I, I have no problem. So, Donald, I'm here. It's fine. You can do whatever you want. So we all want safety and security. We all do. And so uh, the world, just to, to convince ourselves that we're safe and to convince ourselves that we're more secure, more private, we're going to add all kinds of bells and whistles and lights and camera and action to everything that we do. Here's some breaking news. There is no privacy. There's none. No privacy at all. God knows and sees everything so uh, hopefully hopefully you're not secretly somehow hiding something that you hope that none of the rest of us know um, because god knows anyhow and by the way uh, it's not just a thing well okay i can delay that till i stand before god that's going to be bad news but uh, even if that's the way you think that's not exactly true either because remember um moses found out in uh, the book of numbers the uh, great phrase that we enjoy that be sure your sins will find you out (laughs) and boy is that the truth Um, we see it on the news all the time we read it in a paper our prisons are full of people that their sins found them out and uh and there's a lot more people that probably should be in prison that their sins have found them out or many more that it hasn't yet but it will I'm going to submit to you that the only real security that there is, is in Christ. That's it. It's the only place that we're going to be safe and secure. 
We're studying the, the writing of John, the letter of 1 John, that little epistle of five chapters. We're at the end of it. <clears throat> John could not have ended on a more climatic note. This is so exciting what he tells us because it's all about assurance and security, which is our greatest needs. That's what we all want. We can look around today in the world and we see people that are groping in spiritual darkness. They are totally lost. They have no idea what life is about or what anything beyond life. Uh, They're searching for answers and they're looking for love in all the wrong places. And for most of them, their only destiny that they're aware of is death. That's it. And John offers great news. If this was Christmas and not Easter, I would call it glad tidings, but uh, it's wonderful news. John wrote to show the believers that those who obey the message of the gospel can and do know with assurance that they have eternal life. And along with that eternal life, they have everything that heaven has to offer, all the attendant blessings that are given by God, all of that is yours when you have Christ as Savior. So the thing that if you're here skeptical, which I hope you're not, but if you are, that's okay, we can handle that. Your next question would be prove it. That's probably not a question, is it? But you would say prove it. Okay, I will. Let's look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. This is one of my favorite verses. I'm not going to say it's my life verse, but it's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And uh, I've been working with this verse for four decades plus, And I can assure you that the way it's written is what John said. That's how he said it. And you can't state it any other way. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you can know that you have eternal life. There's a certainty of assurance that comes from having Christ as Savior. Now, when John wrote the gospel, the fourth gospel that we have, remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? When John wrote that, he wrote it so that unbelievers could read that and get saved. That's what he was hoping. So he wrote all these proofs about who Jesus was and what he did and how he is indeed the Son of God. But the purpose of this letter that he wrote here is that those who do believe in the name of Jesus may know for absolute sure that they have eternal life. So that we can walk away and say, wow, I am secure, safe in Jesus. Salvation was made available to us through Jesus Christ, but sin disqualified us and it blocks us and it keeps us from growing spiritually. But we can have eternal life. We can have it through faith in Christ. And whoever believes in him has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in him does not have eternal life. The only question is your sincerity, not his security. That's guaranteed. He's promised it. He's done it. He said it. It's there. The question is, how sincere are you before him? Do you really believe? Now, uh, this might take a little bit of time to write all this down, so I'll go slowly if you're filling in your blanks on there. But here's a survey of what John said in this epistle 
tells us that we can be sure that we are saved, that we know Christ. If we're walking in the light, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, is what John wrote. And if we're walking in that light, that's a pretty good indicator that we're believers in Christ. He says that we confess our sins. And, and if we do that on, I'm not going to say a daily basis, I hope so, but maybe not. But if you do it on somewhat of a regular basis, you every once in a while you catch up with God and, and ask him to cleanse you and forgive your sins, that's an indicator you may be a believer in Christ. If you're obeying his commands, that's significant. Because remember back in John 15, Jesus told his disciples that if you love me, you're going to obey my commands. And so as you're obeying Christ, it's a, it's a picture, it's an indicator to everybody around that that guy's a follower of Jesus. He believes in him. It's real. It's true to him. If you got those written down, I'm going to go to the next one. Uh, loving your fellow believers, that takes a lot of work. <laughs> and sometimes it's not easy, but um, we grow in that. That's, and that's not a natural thing. Uh, it, you would say, I would think, that sometimes it's difficult to love family members uh, perfectly. and um, But to people you don't know, to come together in love, that's something that God wants us to do. If you believe in the incarnation, that's a huge one. And we'll come back to that a little bit later as well. That Jesus Christ, Jesus came, he's the creator of God who came to earth in flesh, lived for us, died and rose again um, as God to save us from our sins. And then practicing righteousness, living holy lives. None of us have that down well. And uh, as best as I could tell, even the most ascetic monks of the Middle Ages still had sin in their life. So everybody's uh, lax in that area. But if, that's, if all of those things that we just listed from that John listed for us, if all of them are there, on a somewhat continuous, habitual uh, pattern for you, then you can be assured that you have eternal life. Now, John's saying that in, John, in 1 John 5.13, and he's saying it based on all the things that he said in the previous five chapters, and he's also looking ahead to the climatic end here as he tells us um, the purpose of his writing. And that purpose was so that you can know so that you can know. In verses 13 to 20, seven times he's going to use the word K-N-O-W. <laughs> seven times. So it makes you think that it's kind of important. You can know that you are saved. When I first went into ministry, uh, and I was on staff at Worcester, uh, there were some people who were leaving the church. They were good people, but they were leaving the church. They had problems. That's fine. That always happens. And uh, and they went to another church in town. And it was only a couple months later that one by one, three different ones came back to me and said, hey, this church does not believe in eternal security. What does the Bible really teach about that? So we went through some of that. But one of my sayings that I like to do just to make it short and fit here is I, I always go to First John 5.13. And it's like, so if you cannot know, then you have to tear out of your Bible the epistle of First John. You got to do it out because that's the only reason he wrote was so you can know for sure that you are saved. And if that's not possible, then we got to get rid of that. Well, that causes greater problems if you start tearing out of your Bible things that you don't like or don't agree with. 
Then you have an issue with Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, that tells us not to add or to take away from the scripture, or else you're going to add on all kinds of judgments. And um, just trust God. Just trust God at what he says. That's the easy way to look at it. So we're going to look a little bit further and see what else he says about this. And there's the um, certainties of answered prayer. I'm going to read it first, verses 14 and 15. Here's what it says. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. This is all about petitions. This is about asking God uh, in prayer. And it's conditioned around according to God's will. Now, I know everybody would like to have a free Philly cheesesteak as soon as the service is done. And you can pray about that all you want, but I'm not so sure that that's part of God's will, that he's going to provide that for us. He may, he may not. No guarantee on that. Or whatever thing you think you want to pray for, and that's fine. It's got to be according to God's will. And God's will is always, always good. Because he always cares and always does what is best for his children. Now, if you ever raise children, you probably know that there's been a moment or two where you did what was right and best for them, but they didn't think so. <laughs> they absolutely did not agree with you. They didn't believe you. They, uh, How could you be such a horrible parent? And, uh, and, and why did you marry that guy anyhow, is what Kim asked once when she was five years old. So... Um, we are still seeking the answer to that question. But it has to agree with God's will, with Scripture. And the prayer must be in harmony with God's Word. I put in your outline uh, a little thing that Irving Jensen, it's another Jensen, uh, wrote that says we have to ask according to God's will, verse 14. He hears us, verse 14. We have confidence that he hears us, verse 15. And the requests we ask of him are assured of us, verse 15. All of that's about asking. Did you ever notice that um, you and I ask God of things? When Jesus prayed, there is no place in, in the Gospels where it said that Jesus asked God for something. He never did. He didn't ask. He didn't have petitions. Uh, he prayed his was fellowship with his father, communion. We ask God. We're allowed to do that. And um, I wrote myself this question, Does God? and I put that answer too. Uh, does God have an interest, that's supposed to be singular, by the way, in the affairs of men? Yeah, yeah, of course he does. God cares about us. And so we are allowed to ask and to Give an example, he gives us verses 16 and 17, which reads this way. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now you're confused. <clears throat> um, this is an example of a prayer request. God tells us, and I think this is part of what he's teaching us in here, is that uh, we can pray for ourselves, we can pray for others, and God helps them, and he helps us through it. In this case, he gives you an example of someone who is in sin. 
And first of all, it says it's a brother in sin. So I think that means he's a believer, a follower of Christ, and he's in sin. The sin is not listed, by the way. It also says that you have firsthand knowledge of this. You know that it's happening. You either saw it or you you know somehow, um, very valid reason, you know. And what it should do for you and I is it should, first of all, promote compassion for that person and then stimulate action to do something that helps them. When you're born of God, you are born to talk to your father in prayer. That's part of what he wants us to do. And we receive from him what he believes that we need. So here's a case where someone is sinning. And that whole issue of sin that is to death, sin that is not to death, I I don't think it's really that cloudy. Um, Sometimes people die as a result of their sinfulness. There was a guy named Moses that... um, did not follow the directions of God, and God told him, you're going to die and not enter the promised land. You're going to miss out on that. I'm going to take you up on the mountain and let you see it, but you're not going in there. And that's all he was living for, was lead his people there, and he didn't get to do it. There was a neat couple in the scriptures, their name were Ananias and Sapphira, and they lied to the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be a great spiritual gift to have, the gift that the apostles had then when they said to them individually, you're lying to the Holy Spirit, you're dead. And they dropped dead, and the ushers came. That was the first ushers, Tom. They came and carried the bodies out. And um, and then later, Sapphira, the wife, same thing. As a leader, wouldn't that be so cool if I could say, you didn't get that offering, goodbye. <laughs> No, I don't want that power, believe me. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about a communion that some people were not worshiping God properly. They were totally selfish and, and abusing the, uh, the communion service. And it says some are sick, meaning really, really sick. Some have even died. As a result of it. So that kind of stuff can happen. People do die. Ultimately, all of us will die. None of us get out of here alive. And we're all going to die. And all of that death is because of our sin. All of it. It may not be directly connected to it, but we have all sinned. And so the, uh, the matter of death is on us. But in this case, this is somebody who can be helped. Uh, by the way, when we say that uh, you know somebody could die, not, not everybody, um, for God alone knows what brings that. Somebody could do something that maybe God says, okay, I don't want you doing that, and they're gone. Somebody else could do the same exact thing, and God could maybe say, oh, I don't care. Go ahead and ruin your life. I, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't think God would say that. That's me. But um, but I, I don't know what God does to bring that up there. We've already read this, Galatians chapter 6, and David did a beautiful job of reading that, where it says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Somebody's in sin. We know it. We see what's going on in their lives. And by the way, sin brings destruction. It always brings destruction. It may not be immediately, but it will. 
It'll bring destruction. If nothing else, it destroys your relationship with God as far as fellowship. And so that's destructive. That's not healthy for any of us. Uh, it can bring even worse than that, even as time goes on. But So somebody's caught in sin, and it says, you who are spiritual. Most of us, and I would say I feel comfortable saying that with people in the room, most of us will say, well, I'm not spiritual. I'm not a super saint or anything like that. And that's good. That's good to feel that way because we're not. Uh, and it also warns us in there, watch yourself. So, yeah, there's some that, you know, maybe have walked closer to Christ or maybe they've had a longer walk with Christ or, or maybe they know the Word of God just a little bit better. They have a responsibility to help people who are entrenched in sin. But when you do that, you have to be really, really careful uh, not to get puffed up, not to be judgmental, not to, uh, to do anything that brings hurt because the end result, the goal of this whole thing is to restore them, to restore them to where they can be in fellowship with Christ and, and in fellowship with the body of Christ and in service of the Lord. And you do that gently. You do that gently. My experience is it doesn't always work. Um, but I'm going to qualify that by saying most of the time it doesn't work because of the person who I'm trying to restore. If they're not receptive to that, if they're rebellious to it, then it's not going to work. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so it does have to go both ways. But here's the warning. Paul's just writing to us and saying, be careful, be careful, be careful. Be loving, be merciful, be gentle, but be very, very careful spiritually with your own hearts and your own mind. And uh, here's the other verse, too, from, whoops, I went way too much on that, from James chapter 5. And I know all that's before it, but uh, the concluding part is, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. If you can help a brother who's struggling with something, uh, even if they're not going to acknowledge it or recognize it, then you can help turn them from a problem. And, and the idea of you can save them from death, and it's true, sin just destroys people. It destroys families. It destroys cultures and civilizations. Uh, it really, really does. And you can help cover a multitude of sins, of which many of those sins have not been committed yet. If that person continues in this downward spiral trend, there's a lot of horrible things ahead for them. You can help avoid that if you can lovingly help restore them and turn them from their sins. I get the impression John knew what was going on in his congregation and in his culture, and he was trying to prepare them for how to, uh, how to walk with Christ in harmony and to live together for the glory of God. But good news, there's the certainty of victory that comes in verses 18 and 19. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Believers do not live in continual sin. Now, John had already wrote in chapter 1, verse 8, that if you claim that you don't sin, then you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. 
And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, he says, if you claim you have not sinned in the past, then you're making God out to be a liar because God said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't know very many people who claim that, but there have been some, and that's ridiculous. In 1 John 2, 1, John said, I'm writing to you at this point because I want you not to sin at all. So he's trying to help us to avoid sin. We need to do that. And he tells us that Christ keeps them safe. But he also says that the evil one can harm us. And that word harm, at least that's what is translated in the New International, the word harm means to grasp onto something, to hold onto, to fasten yourself to someone or something. And John's contrasting that between the believers and the non-believers, and he's saying believers are safe in Christ, but non-believers are gripped by evil, and I would say even the devil. Satan has control. He has control of the world systems today. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that, that Paul called him the God of this world. He's the God of the rulers. He's the God of all the teachings, ideas, and philosophies that permeate our cultures. He's the God of all the sinful lures. But Satan cannot lay hold on the child of God. Can't do it. He can touch the believer, but he cannot take hold of him and keep him in his grip. We are safe in Christ. John goes on a theme several times in this letter that there's two families. There's the ones that are born of God, and he's the source of everything for them. Or there's the family of the world, the family of Satan. When you're born of God, you're born to be secure, and you're born to win the victory. So then he goes on to tell us, uh, that, oh, there you go, a couple other things I've already said those, but that's fine. Um, the certainties of the incarnation. He comes back to this again. He started with it. In verse 20, he says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, remember the uh, that nasty group, the Gnostics, that that John's been kind of, he's not writing to them, but he's still trying to prepare the believers to deal with them. And the Gnostics denied that God came to earth as a man. That's something they denied. They thought it was the Spirit of God that came on him and left him and all that stuff. And in contrast to that, John just says, we know also that the Son of God has come. He has come, he's been here, he's incarnate, he's lived with us. John would know. He walked with him for the entire time that Jesus had an earthly ministry. He knew him intimately. In fact, Jesus called John the one, the, the apostle whom I loved, the beloved one. They were friends. They were really, really close. So he understood and knew exactly who Jesus was. In his writings, he tells us that Jesus is that God is spirit in John 4:24. In John, in this letter, in John, First uh, John one five, he says God is light. In four eight, he says God is love. And here he's saying he is also life. He is eternal life. 
Christ came to reveal who God is to us. That's what John 1, 18 says. Jesus' role is always the revealer of God. And he tells us that he is the truth. And here he mentions that he is true for absolute sure. When you're born of God, you have a Lord who loves you, and who came to earth to die for you, and who rules and reigns today on high to keep you secure forever. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just tremendous and great? So John now is going to conclude his letter with a very fatherly kind of reminder. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Where did that come from? That sounds like, why did he put that footnote in there? Tells him to stay away from idols. But, you know, that's probably good advice because anything that tries to take the place of God is an idol. And you and I and everybody else have to deal with that all the time. We have to be very, very careful not to let anything take the place of God. In the 21st century, especially in the United States of America, we are really good at God makers. We're really good at making things out to be as big as God. But you're a follower of Jesus. And when you know him, the one true and living God, it's really unreasonable, it's illogical to worship anything, a dead idol or any other person or thing. So for John, the project is over. At least his first letter is. He's still got a couple more he's going to write. But because of what he wrote, we now know what we ought to be. And we know what we ought to do. And we know what we ought to know. Because we're members of the family of God. Believers in Christ now can know on the highest authority possible that they have eternal, secure life in Christ. Let's pray together. And Father, we are so grateful for that knowledge that to know Christ by faith and believe in him has secured for us uh, a living on this life, but even more important, an eternal home, a place to be with you forever. Thank you so much. The only doubt, the only question involved is just our own hearts. Your word is crystal clear about faith in Christ, forgiveness of sins, repentance, coming to you, and then we have eternal life. But the question would be just ourselves and, and how true and sincere are we before you? Have we asked you to come into our lives? Have we uh, come to you in faith, believing? Have we repented from sins that keep us separated from you? And I just pray that you would search our hearts and um, help us be directed so that we can make commitments, um, pledges, whatever we call it, to be um, honoring to you, and that would draw us nearer to you. Through all of this, may Christ be praised in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.